My little brother's friends have been camped out at our place for two days straight. Three. It's because of the Xfinity 10G network. Internet that can handle a house full of screens at once, with like basically no interruptions. And it's only getting faster. When I was their age, internet like this was a pipe dream. You sound like my grandpa. Please go home. Introducing the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Ladies, at Essential Health, you're not just a patient. You're a partner in your healthcare journey. We'll get to the heart of your health questions, even the ones you're embarrassed to ask. We'll find solutions to fit your unique needs and lifestyle, because here, we're in it together. Feel confident in your care and in yourself. Schedule a women's health appointment with an Essentia Health provider today. Click the banner to learn more. This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The Darkness Awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 298th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. This episode is another one of those that I'm really excited to bring you because I've actually been to this location. And not only have I been to this location, but one of the particular buildings that we're going to talk about, I actually got to investigate as well. And this location is Ybor City, a neighborhood of Tampa here in Florida. And this city has an amazing history that I knew nothing about until I took a ghost tour there with a group from the Spooktacular crew. So I got to do another thing I love to do, get to meet some of you guys. I just love doing those meetups. And I want to start doing a lot more meetups in the future. And I want to start doing a lot more episodes where it's me bringing you a place that I can tell you about from my own personal perspective, places that I have investigated myself. And in order to facilitate that, well, it costs money. And we are almost to episode 300. I can't believe I've produced that many episodes so far. And as a matter of fact, if you look in your apps, I think I'm going to be up to like 337 or 338 that are on the free feed. And in all of that time, History Ghost Bump has been entirely listener supported. You guys have made this podcast happen. And you're going to continue to make this podcast happen. But only about 1% of you that listen actually financially support the show. And for that reason, I have to look for other avenues to bring in revenue so that I can facilitate not only the production costs of the show and how things get more expensive the more popular I get and how I have to pay for more storage space and all that good stuff, but also in order for me to travel around and do more meetups or live shows, that kind of thing, I have to find some other ways to bring in that revenue. 
And so as much as you guys know, I have really pushed back against bringing any advertising on. I'm going to be joining the throes of almost every other podcast out there. And we are going to start having ads on History Ghost Bump. Now, you know me, you know, I'm going to make them as fun as possible for you guys so that they're not boring for you to listen to. You can always fast forward through them if you like. If you hear about something you enjoy, I encourage you to check it out because it does help the podcast if you do that. And what I'm going to do for those of you who are executive producers at the $2 and above level, I'm going to add to your tier of rewards, ad-free episodes. So in the feed that you're already getting the bonus content, you'll also be getting the regular episodes completely ad-free. So you won't have to listen to them at all. And that's for everybody who gives at $2 and above. Now, enough of all that business stuff. Let's go ahead and welcome some people into the Spooktacular crew. We want to welcome in Memory. What a great name. Victoria, Lori with an I and an E, Kara, who spells her name with a C, Russ, Katie with an I-E, Brandy with an I, Melissa, Leanne, Garrett with one R, Tanya, Monica, Tim. We have another Leanne, Holly with an I-E, and she also joined me on the Ebor Ghost Tour, so it was so nice meeting you, Bree, Ashley, Cecilia, Gina, Kellyanne, Tammy with a Y, Vanessa with an E at the beginning, and I'm not sure if this is Tupfer or Yvonne, Jimmy, Amy, Kara with a K, and then finally, Norman and Linda, who are Patrick Keller's parents, for those of you who listen to the Big Seance podcast. So, so happy to have his parents joining us in the Spooktacular crew. Welcome to everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. The Hoosac Tunnel took 24 years to complete at a cost of $21 million. It's a railroad tunnel that stretches nearly five miles in western Massachusetts. Many people have nicknamed the tunnel the Bloody Pit. Construction was started in 1851, and you can imagine at that time that cutting through a mountain was quite the feat. Techniques that are used to this day for tunnel drilling were created at this time, and in 1975 the tunnel was made an historic civil engineering landmark. Workers would pay a hefty price in creating this marvel. 196 of them would die from accidents. One accident trapped 13 men who lived long enough to make a raft to keep from drowning when the pumps failed, and water rose in the shaft in which they were trapped. They eventually suffocated. Another accident left two men dead after an explosion. A third man that was with the other two men, Kelly Ringo, escaped the explosion even though he was the one to actually set it off on accident. A little over a year later, Ringo was working in the tunnel again. He was found later strangled to death. No one was ever caught in connection to his murder. Legend claims that the two men who died in the blast he triggered had come back to exact their revenge. And it's easy to believe, because there are many supernatural things that happen here, from lanterns swaying on their own, to disembodied voices, to shadow figures. The ghosts of two men killed in a construction accident coming back to get the man who caused it? certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history.
topic of This Month in History was suggested by Shelley Emery. In the month of May, on the 5th in 1945, six people were killed by a balloon bomb near Bly, Oregon. It was a beautiful day, the perfect day for a picnic. Reverend Mitchell and his wife decided to head to a wooded area along Leonard Creek to do just that. They invited five kids from their Sunday school class to join them. The Reverend dropped everyone at the picnic spot and then drove away to park the car. He describes what happened as he got out of the car. As I got out of the car to bring the lunch, the others were not far away and called to me that they'd found something that looked like a balloon. I heard of Japanese balloons, so I shouted a warning not to touch it. But just then, there was a big explosion. Balloon bombs were constructed by the Japanese during World War II, and they made as many as 9,000 of them. At least 285 of them made it all the way to the west coast of America. The balloons were made of paper and inflated with hydrogen. Each balloon carried a variety of bombs. Mitchell ran to where he dropped his pregnant wife and the children off at. There was a crater a foot deep and three feet wide, and everyone was dead. The victims were his pregnant wife, Dick Patsky, 14, Jay Gifford, 13, Edward Ingen, 13, Joan Patsky, 13, and Sherman Shoemaker, 11. This was the only enemy-inflicted attack that caused casualties on the U.S. mainland during World War II. Be careful. Some bombs were never found and could still be out there, and as proof of that, one was found in British Columbia in the Monashi Mountains in 2014. When people claim that a town was the wildest in the West, we have certain images that come to mind. We envision gunfights in the street, brothels, saloons, cowboy hats, and spurs. But what about a city that was dubbed the Wild West of the South? Change those cowboy hats to gangster fedoras and the spurs to cigars, and you get Ybor City. This neighborhood just outside of Tampa, Florida, has an amazing history which has led to some interesting haunts. Join me as I explore the history and hauntings of Ybor City. A small group of us took the Ybor City ghost tour a couple of weekends ago, and our minds were blown about the history going on in this town. When you drive down the main drag, which is 7th Avenue, it becomes clear that this truly is Cigar City. But then you notice something else peculiar. There are Mardi Gras beads hanging from trees and littering the roofs of the businesses. That's because this city is built to reflect the French Quarter in New Orleans, and in many ways it does. Bars dot the landscape and the roads are built from brick. But rather than having the scent of stale beer and urine in the air, there's the sweet, pungent smell of cigar smoke. And everybody smokes big stogies here, including that 70-something woman we just passed, sitting outside of one of the haunted locations here. A must here is to watch a cigar being hand-rolled. This street was named as one of the 10 great streets in America in 2008. Another nod to New Orleans is the street trolley that runs up and down the street. I've lived in Florida for 12 years. I go over to Tampa every so often and visit the beaches over there. I've been to Bush Gardens, and I've checked out a few of the Tampa Bay Rays games over in Tropicana Field. But I'd never been to Ybor City. 
I'd heard of it, and I thought, wow, that's such a strange name city. It has a weird spelling, Y-B-O-R, but I never checked into it. One of the listeners named Shell was coming down from Canada. She said she was going to be in Tampa in May. And she said, is there any way that we could meet up somehow? And I thought, you know, we haven't done a ghost tour over in Tampa for a while. So sure, why don't I set up a meetup? I'd already done one of the ghost tours in Tampa. So I was like, you know, I know I saw an advertisement for the Ybor City ghost tour. I don't know what it would be about, but maybe we could try that one. It'll be a little bit something different for me. I had no idea that we were going to get to go into a location that had been featured on Ghost Hunters while doing this tour. So that was a little plus. I knew nothing about this city. And oh my gosh, I love history. And when you stumble into a place that's called the Wild West of the South on accident, that's a happy accident. And I can't wait to tell you more about it. Ebor City was founded by a group of cigar manufacturers looking for a place to relocate. They were originally located in Key West, a place that presented higher costs and transportation issues. Tampa was still near enough to Cuba to keep the price of the Cuban tobacco low, and it also had the plus of new railroad lines being built throughout the state of Florida to facilitate transportation of the cigars to the rest of the United States. There was also the plus of lots of land. Key West was small and land was poor. But in Tampa, workers could actually buy land and build their own homes. So workers migrated from Key West to Tampa. The leader of this group of cigar manufacturers was Vincente Martinez Ibor, and he built his workers' homes and sold them for basically cost. The area was founded in 1885 and named for Ibor. The success of the city led Tampa to annex it in 1887, and this would be the state's first industrial town. Ebor's Cigar Factory was the largest brick building in Florida. Immigrants came from everywhere to work here. The city took on a European atmosphere as these immigrants arrived from Germany, Romania, Italy, and Spain. And, of course, many Cubans arrived, too. Each group had their own club, and all array of ethnic holidays were observed. These different groups brought their own specialties, and soon shops were popping up all over Ebor City, as well as restaurants. German lithographers invented the cigar label here. This made Ybor City pretty special. The ethnic clubs provided social outlets as well as health care for their members, and workers were happy as they were not beholden to a single company. So when you hear that you have these cigar manufacturers that are employing all of these immigrants and that they're building homes for them and selling the homes to them, it kind of gives you the feel that this was a company town. But it really wasn't in the sense that we understand company towns today. A lot of times it was kind of a negative because if you left the company, you lost everything. You didn't have a home, a place to live anymore, and you probably lost your only opportunity for work in a certain city. So you'd have to relocate somewhere else. And sometimes these company towns would overwork you and not pay you very much. This is a lot of the reason why unions started cropping up is because of the treatment of people in company towns. And so even though Ybor City sounds like that's what it was, it wasn't. Workers could own their own property, which made them very different. And then if they decided they didn't like to work for this cigar manufacturer, they could go over and work for that other cigar manufacturer. They wouldn't lose their home. And they wouldn't be pushed out of the town because there was a whole lot of opportunities in Ybor City for work. And what also makes this area great is that so many of these buildings, the factories, social clubs, and balconied storefronts still exist today. So Ybor City sounds like a great place to work and live, but this area was called 
the Wild West of the South, for a reason. There was no law here. When Prohibition was enacted throughout America, Ybor City completely ignored it. The taps here continued to run. Tunnels were built under the city, and these were not constructed to facilitate the sewage system. These tunnels helped crime run rampant. They were used for transporting illegal goods or to help criminals escape when night spots were raided. The lawlessness attracted the mob and gangsters. Speakeasies popped up everywhere, along with brothels, and murder and mayhem were rampant as well. Organized crime ran a gambling game called Bolita, which is Spanish for little ball. This is a game of chance like a lottery. A bag is filled with small numbered balls and one is pulled at random, and this is the winning number. A notorious gangster named Charlie Wall ran many of the Bolita games and he used the proceeds to fund his criminal projects. As the 1930s rolled into the 1940s, residents of Ybor City took to calling it the Era of Blood. The city continued to deteriorate and the buildings were abandoned. In the 1980s, the neighborhood took on new life as an artist colony developed in Ybor City. Soon, bars and restaurants and stores moved in, and the nightlife has been alive ever since. And alive here, as remnants of the crazy past, are spirits. Wanted to share a little fun fact with you before we get into talking about the haunted locations here. There is only one place where you actually can stand in Cuba while still being in America, and that's here in Ybor City. There's a park dedicated to Cuban poet and revolutionary Jose Marti, and it's owned by Cuba. The United States does not maintain it, so volunteers in the Cuban community take care of it. The first location we're going to talk about is not a place that we stopped at with the ghost tour, but I'd already heard about it previously. This is King Corona Cigars Cafe and Bar, and this is the place that we were walking past when we saw everyone smoking a cigar out on the patio, including a woman who probably was about 70-something. This outside patio area along the street is dotted with tables, and people will be sitting here not only puffing on their cigars, but sipping some wine or a craft beer. The cafe and bar were founded in 1998 by Don and Brenda Barco, and they both have run it through all these years until Don passed away this past March, right here in 2019. The building has housed other businesses previously, though. I believe the original store was a dress shop owned by Raul Vega, and he ran that for 60 years. The 12 years following that, it was a women's upscale store called La Nica Fashions. And then the building was empty for two years until Don bought it. His family had been in the cigar business for five generations. The building needed a lot of renovations and Don enlisted some friends to help him. This is when they would discover that there was something other than dust left behind. Joe Howden was one of those friends helping Don, and he was there late one night by himself. He couldn't shake the feeling that he was not really by himself. He grabbed a hammer and walked towards the back of the building, where he saw a very large man standing. Joe didn't want a confrontation, so he held the hammer in front of his body and backed up towards the front door, hoping to run away. It turned out that he wouldn't have to run, because the large man just evaporated into thin air. This large man was not the only spirit here. Another friend helping renovate was named Sarah. She was painting the walls when she saw a young girl at the back of the store. The girl just stared at Sarah, and Sarah could see that she was wearing a period dress. Sarah said, hello, but got no response. As she approached the girl, she disappeared. 
patrons and workers have experienced disembodied voices and strange, unidentifiable sounds. Mediums who have visited the cafe have seen the large man spirit and claim that it belongs to Raul Vega, the one who opened the original dress shop there. One medium named Joanne walked to the back of the store and claimed to see a lot of blood everywhere, as though someone had been killed here. She also claimed to see the spirit of a young girl cowering in a back storeroom, and that this child spirit was terrified of something. The energy was so negative around her that Joanne ran from the room and would not go back inside. Another medium named Sheila joined writer Dave Lampham at the cafe. She saw the same pools of blood in the back of the store, and David told her nothing about the place before they went in. And she saw the little girl ghost cowering in the corner, too. Now, if we are to believe that both of these mediums saw what they saw, what is the story here? Did something happen to this little girl, and that's why her spirit is trapped there? Being that they both see a lot of blood, was she murdered there? If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Our next stop is the Don Vincente de Ibor Historic Inn. Casa Ibor is the former Don Vincente de Ibor Historic Inn. The man who founded Ybor City built this building and did it in the Mediterranean style. Today, it offers retail, residential, and office spaces, but it is best remembered as the Don Vincente de Ybor Inn. And that is what it was when Dead Files visited. For those of you who don't know, Dead Files is one of the paranormal programs that is featured on the Travel Channel. It happens to be one that I've really been enjoying binging lately. It's interesting to have a detective on one side of it and a medium on the other side. And they both go in and investigate it with their own way of doing that. Obviously, the detective gets into the history. His name is Steve. He asks people kind of like going around doing interviews and interrogations and finding out the experiences that people have had there and what neighbors know about certain locations. And then Amy, who's the medium, goes in there I believe it's with her husband, and she has him clear out any pictures, anything that would tell her about the people who live there, and then she does a reading as she goes around from room to room, and then Steve and Amy come back together at the end of the episode and share their findings, and it's amazing how much their findings match up with each other, if we are to believe everything that we're seeing on TV. Originally, this building was a real estate office, Ebor Land and Improvement Company, a planning and development office for the community, and then it transformed into LBN Publico Clinic, a medical clinic, in 1903. It would change names to the Gonzalez Clinic after the LBN Publico closed in 1973. This would run until 1980. The building sat empty for 18 years, and then Jack Shiver bought it in 1998 and fully refurbished the interior into a beautiful period-decorated inn. It took two years and $2 million. 
The beautiful staircase was restored, as was the hand-carved wooden bar, and the brass and bluish-pink light fixtures were added. Persian rugs, beautiful French chandeliers, and antiques were added as well. And one of those antiques was an imposing grandfather clock that was the grand prize winner at the 1915 Panama Pacific Exhibition in San Francisco. The basement had been a speakeasy at one time and was renovated to be a large gathering place. The inn closed in May of 2015 and is now Casa Ibor. Daryl Shaw had bought the building for $2.2 million in 2014, so he must have decided that it was worth more to have it as offices rather than the inn. It was a gorgeous place. I haven't been able to see it since they put the offices in. It was still under construction, strangely, when we went by on the tour. And I would think from 2015 to 2019, you'd already have the renovations done, but I'm not sure what's going on there. And I, I hope that it still has a lot of that former glory in it and that they haven't made it too modern on the inside, I guess is what I'm trying to say. During the clinic's time, this was really a celebrated hospital. When you use the term clinic, you kind of think of a urgent care in and out kind of thing, but this was set up like a hospital. There was a man named Jose Luis Avellanal who had been born in Tampa in 1903. His father had founded the first clinic in the building. One of his father's first patients was a young boy that Jose had shot in the eye. Jose was a really bad kid, and he was going to grow into a really bad guy. He would develop what he called an electric chair when he was young and convinced a neighbor boy to help him test it. Needless to say, this would be another patient for his father. His father put Jose in solitary confinement, hoping it would straighten him up, but he just escaped and stole his dad's car. He was shipped off to military school. He moved around when he became an adult with a stop in Tennessee where he was charged with possession of drugs and kidnapping a woman. When he returned to Ybor City, he claimed that he was a doctor, but many feel the diploma that he had was actually fake. He set up shop at El Paseo Hotel where he conducted bizarre and macabre experiments. He told people he could raise the dead and even tried to publish articles on resurrecting the dead. Apparently he was bringing dead cats back to life or he wanted to and was asking the city if he could do that. He also experimented with cryogenics. He practiced as a plastic surgeon and gynecologist, so I can only imagine what kind of a horror show that was. He also established Southern University, which was really only a diploma mill, and he was charged with fraud. He visited Mexico and returned claiming that he had been given the title of lieutenant general, and he was often seen in full uniform around town. He eventually died in 1982. An interesting note, as if the rest of this wasn't already interesting, is that Jose wrote a suicide note. In it, he claimed to have had 500 sexual relationships. This note was nine pages of rambling and disturbing narcissism. Now, this Jose character comes to light when Dead Files is in there. And that's where they find the suicide note. So I found myself asking, well, why are we talking about this Jose guy? I know his dad founded this first clinic, but how is he connected to the clinic? I mean, he set up shop at a hotel that was across from it. Well, keep in mind, as I've told you, there were tunnels running all around under the city. And apparently there was some kind of a tunnel that was running out from the inn or the clinic over to this other hotel. Now, I saw on the internet that there were stories that claimed that this Jose character was doing all these experiments, and through some of those experiments, he was killing people, or I don't know what all was going on. But the claim was that he was then taking the bodies through the tunnels back over to the clinic, and that there must have been some kind of place there where he could incinerate the bodies, and he was incinerating the bodies there. And so there's all this negative energy because of that. Well, I didn't find any 
proof of that. So I don't know that he was doing that. He definitely was a colorful character, definitely a unique individual if he's claiming that he could raise the dead. But was he doing something nefarious and killing people and incinerating them in the clinic? That I have no proof of. I'm thinking it probably is a legend. Locals have called this location Hotel Hell, and that's what they called it on Dead Files too. And this was on the first season. Amy really didn't like the place. The first entity she experiences is a nurse who worked in the clinic. She sees the spirit going back and forth over and over in what seems to be a residual manner as she continues to do her work in the afterlife. The nurse's name is thought to be Tabby. In the end, there were 16 rooms in all, and the two main haunted rooms were room 303 and room 305. The water is said to come on by itself and footsteps are heard. Outside of room 305, Amy thought she saw the body of someone lying face up. When she entered the room, she felt a very negative energy and she felt sick. She felt like a murder-suicide had happened in the room. But this incident did not happen while this was an inn because obviously the caretakers would have known about that. And when they were informed about this, they just looked at Amy and Steve and were like, um, nobody's died on the premises, at least not when it was an inn. Now, obviously, quite a few people died when it was a clinic. But was there a murder-suicide when it was the clinic? There's no proof of it. I couldn't find anything for that. We do have this suicide note that Jose wrote, but he didn't commit suicide, and he actually lived all the way into 1982. I don't know if she was picking up on some energy from Jose because he'd written a suicide note, if he had threatened to do it to some woman. I'm not sure. The one thing that was clear is that she did see the spirit of Jose because she gets together with a sketch artist and has him sketch one of the entities that she's seen, and it's Jose that she has sketched. Not sure exactly what all the connections are there. The front desk clerk was named Ray, and he said a woman told him that she had seen a ghost that just stared at her in room 305. Tessa is the daughter of Jack Shiver, and she helped run the inn. She was scared of the basement and always took the stairs two at a time when she was going up. She told Steve about a terrifying experience she had one day in the restroom down in the basement around 2.30 in the afternoon. She looked up into the mirror and saw a woman in a Spanish veil standing behind her. She could see right through the woman. She fell backwards, screaming in terror, spilling her purse and all its contents everywhere. Jack Shiver himself had experiences, too. He was down working in the basement and he saw a light and then a very small lady. There are no windows in the basement, so there was no way that a window was causing this light. The woman looked back at him and he thought she was a Spanish woman, too. He could see through her, so he knew she wasn't human. So Jack and Tessa believed that they saw the same woman, and Amy seemed to insinuate that possibly this was the nurse or the woman who was taking care of people that she had seen as well. The basement had served as a speakeasy at one time, and Amy could see that there were many people there. She had to leave the area after she was overwhelmed by at least 20 entities. She said that it felt as though many of them had killed somebody at some point. Some had crushed faces and they were vibrating. It all sounded very weird to me. She could sense the tunnels coming to the basement also. She would put her hands up on the wall and kept saying, I feel like I could go through here, like I'm supposed to be able to go beyond this. Were some of those tunnels that I talked about, is this where they were coming in and they were using them to facilitate bringing in alcohol during Prohibition? Keep in mind that anything went in this city, so they really didn't need to hide stuff in tunnels. 
So I don't know exactly what the tunnels were being used for either. Again, there's people who claim that Jose was moving bodies. But the interesting thing that Amy said is she kept feeling like she was seeing the people in the walls. And it wasn't in such a way that they were walking through the wall into a tunnel that was there previously. They believe that what she actually was seeing were people in the walls because this was where a morgue was for the clinic. And so the people in the wall were just the people whose dead bodies had been put in the morgue. It's a possibility. It will be interesting to hear what happens after the office is open. Will people in Casa Ibor experience the same things as those who ran and visited the inn that was here before that? I look forward to getting more information about that. And then finally, we're going to hit the Cuban club. In 1902, the Cuban immigrants in Ibor City formed El Circulo Cubano, which means Circle of Cubans. The original Cuban club was made of wood and burned down in 1916. The club was quickly rebuilt in the same spot at the corner of Palm Avenue and 14th Street, and this time they used brick, but not any old brick. They used yellow brick because it was three times the price of red brick, and they wanted to one-up the Spanish club and show off their wealth. So keep in mind, I told you about all the different immigrants in this city. Well, they each had their own clubs. You can imagine that they're all trying to one-up each other when they built their clubs. We're fancier than you are. We have more stuff than you. And the Cuban club wanted to be the grandest club of all. The style of the building is neoclassical, and the club was opulent back in its day. It boasted a gym with the latest exercise equipment of the time, a running track, a basketball court, a bowling alley, a pharmacy, a library, and a swimming pool. Now, the pool was only 10 foot by 10 foot and 10 feet deep, so it was more like a spa, but it was the only pool in Ybor City. There's also a theater here with a ceiling painted like the sky. There's a small balcony in the theater, and then just outside the doors, there's a little ticket booth. The dressing rooms are off to one side backstage, and I thought they were pretty small. I've never been backstage for any kind of theater production, so I don't know, maybe it was standard. But there was only a couple of them, and they were pretty tight quarters. The grand ballroom had elaborate murals painted on the ceiling at one time, the building was decorated with imported tile floors, stained glass windows, and elaborately carved scafido spandrels. The fortunes of the club waned in the 1960s, but the Cuban Club Foundation bought the building and they have preserved it. And in case you hadn't already figured it out, we got to go inside the Cuban Club. Our tour guide told us that there were 300 known ghosts here. Now you guys know I'm an open-minded skeptic, so obviously I find that to be a bit of a stretch. I mean, 300 ghosts in one location and we're not on a battleground. I really have a hard time believing that. Theaters are notoriously haunted. Obviously, we all know that around here. But 300, I, I don't know. Seems like it's kind of pushing it to me. There definitely do seem to be some spirits here, though. Our tour guide handed out EMF detectors to everybody and they were going off like crazy. I took my recorder around everywhere, tried to see if I could get any EVP, but really, with the large group that we had and these EMF detectors going off constantly, it was so contaminated that I wouldn't trust anything that I would have picked up. So I'd have to say I didn't get any EVP while we were here. He also didn't let people know that put your phones on airplane mode so you're not setting off the EMFs. 
This is an old building, and I don't know a lot about the electrical there. The EMFs would go crazy near the columns, so I think there was a lot of electrical in there. I know behind one wall, my dad was like, hey, watch this. And it would be, the EMF would be going off, you know, beep, beep, beep. And then he'd move it near the wall and it'd be like, beep, 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 beep. So I explained to him that there's probably some kind of an electrical panel behind that wall or something that's setting it off. I don't know why these EMFs were going off, if it was spirit activity, if it was electrical or a little bit of both, but I didn't put a whole lot of faith into that. The first spirit I want to talk about here is a little boy named Jaime, and I've also seen on the internet that he was called Jimmy, but keep in mind that we are in the Cuban club, so I don't think his name was Jimmy. I think it was probably Jaime. This reminded me of the Queen Mary and the little girl who drowned there and haunts that pool. Same kind of story. You got a kid, drowns in the pool, and is hanging out near the pool. The pool had been down in the basement, but it's no longer there. It was covered over. I mean, you would have never known that there had been a pool there, the way that they have remodeled the downstairs. Ghost Hunters visited the Cuban Club in 2009, and they communicated with Jaime via the flashlight experiment. This is the one where you unscrew the flashlight just to the point where it turns off. You set it down and see if you can get a response from a spirit by turning on the flashlight with yes and no questions. So they tried for an hour with no luck to get Jaime to talk to them. Again, we're in the Cuban club talking to a 10-year-old boy in English. Why do you think he's not communicating with you? Ah, probably because he speaks Spanish. So once they got a Spanish interpreter to come over and do some communicating, they finally started getting some responses. A few years ago, the tour guide had a woman with his group who had an infant with her. After he told us a little bit about the history on each floor, he would set us free for a little bit to kind of do our own investigation. Then we come back together and move to another floor. So that's what he had done here. So everybody's walking around the basement with their EMFs. And so she decided to stand off to the side and cradle the baby and try to get him to go to sleep. And while she was doing that, she had her camera phone on. And so she was snapping a few pictures here and there. Well, when she gets home later, she discovered that one of the pictures had what looked like the head of a little boy peering over a counter. The guide showed us the picture, and it does indeed seem to be the head of a young person looking over a counter. The picture's grainy, but I found it interesting. We also had something kind of interesting happen with our group with a ball that was down in the basement. Holly was with the group and she had taken a bunch of pictures and she'd shared them in the Spooktacular crew and I was looking through them and I noticed that there was this ball in the middle of the floor. And she had told me, I said, well, did you have any experiences? Did you guys feel like anything had happened? She said, well, there was just this time when I saw a ball moving on the floor, but she saw it after it was already in motion. So she wasn't sure if somebody else had pushed it or what had happened there. And since we were with a large group and we didn't know most of the people we were with, it wasn't like we could say, hey, did any of you guys play with this ball, push it, anything like that? So we couldn't find out after the fact if somebody had actually rolled this ball. But why it caught my eye is that when we walked into this basement area, we were all on the far end. And then it opens up into this big room that just is a big gathering room. It has two levels and the lowest level, it's kind of like you walk down three steps, I think it was, to get down to this lower level. The tour guide had asked us all to stay there till he went to the other side to turn on the light so we could kind of see where we were going. So we were all standing there and then everybody started moving towards the other side of the room, especially because that's where the pool had been. So they all wanted to gather down there, see if they could communicate with this little boy spirit. And I'd kind of hung back. And as I was standing back there, I kind of felt what almost felt like a couple of fingers that had moved down my arm, almost like when you have a a hair on your arm or something like that. 
and I'd kind of wipe my arm at first, which is a standard thing you do if you feel like something kind of brushed up against you. And then I thought, well, I wonder if that was something touching me because I was standing all by myself. And so I kind of backed up a little bit and I felt like I'd felt it again, but it's it wasn't enough for me to say, hey, I was touched by something. I definitely would not claim that to be the case. But I did turn around and face back towards the door that we came in. And I said, well, if if somebody's touched me and I put my hand out, I said, you can touch my hand to let me know. And nothing touched my hand, but because I had turned away from the group and was looking back towards the door, I was looking down into that area that was where these three stairs led down to. And I saw something that I think most people wouldn't see. And it was what looked like a ball to me. I couldn't tell if it was a ball or a glass decorative orb, but it was weird because it was on the floor and it was tucked up against these stairs. And so I was like, huh, it's either somebody had been cleaning up and missed picking that up, or I didn't know why it was there. But my head said that it was some kind of a ball. So the fact that later on, Holly makes this comment about this ball coming around the floor made me wonder if it was the same ball that I'd seen. And for somebody to have pulled it out of that corner and rolled it, and it was all the way across the room, seemed a little strange to me. So I wish that we knew that this whole ball thing was going on so that I could see, is it the ball that I originally saw? We could maybe ask the entire group, did anybody grab this ball and move it? It'd be wonderful to know. So I'd like to believe that there was a little boy ghost there playing around, but I can't say that with any kind of positivity. Yazali Ramos was in the building in 2014, and she believes she caught an EVP. And I'm going to go ahead and play that for you here and see if you hear anything. So it's kind of like the Great Gatsby era. In Freeport City, in a sense. Yeah. And I'll play it again. So it's kind of like the Great Gatsby era. In Freeport City, in a sense. Yeah. And what she believes we are hearing in this EVP is Jaime saying, hi, I'll play it one more time. So it's kind of like the Great Gatsby era. In Freeport City, in a sense, yeah. I also found a photo of a possible ghost by the stairs where the pool used to be. I will go ahead and put that up on Instagram, and I also have it in the show notes. And that was a photo taken by Patty Summers. There's a lady in white here. She was a young girl who was the belle of the ball, around 16 years of age. She'd caught the eye of a gangster, and he pursued her heavily. She wanted nothing to do with him and rejected his advances several times. This angered him, and if he couldn't have her, nobody would. When he found her out on the balcony patio, he picked her up and threw her off the top of the club. Her brother stabbed the gangster to death outside the club that evening. The tour guide had a group of five 19- and 20-year-old girls with him a few weeks back when he was touring through the Cuban club. They were up on the fourth floor where the ballroom is, and he counted six silhouettes. When they got downstairs, there were only five women again. He's positive that he saw a six-figure with the girls up there on that fourth floor. This woman is seen in a white dress and red heels and is often seen walking up and down the stairs. The theater is haunted by a young man who wanted to be an actor and a director. It took him two years to write and develop his original play. In 1919, he rented the theater and had his family and all the Cubans in the city come to see his debut. Halfway through the play, he forgot the lines of his own play. He was laughed off the stage and he ran away. He still had the keys to the theater, so he returned at four in the morning. He walked up on the stage, put a rope over the center beam and tied a noose on the end. He stood on a chair with a noose around his neck and finished the play. The young man then stepped off to his death. His spirit haunts the theater and usually shows up around 4 a.m. He's most often heard reciting his lines in Spanish. 
In the 1920s, a member of the board was killed by another member during a heated argument. That murdered board member's ghost is said to walk throughout the building, and there are people who claim that a piano has been heard playing by itself in the theater as well. Now, while we were there, I didn't see a piano anywhere. I don't know if anybody else in our group did, but I don't think there's a piano in the theater anymore. Ybor City is a great place to visit. If you're coming to Tampa, make time to visit this neighborhood and walk those brick streets. Are these locations in Ybor City haunted? That is for you to decide. If you're thinking about taking a ghost tour there, you just check out eborghosttour.com and that's Y-B-O-R. It really was a lot of fun. It was great getting to meet Shell and Holly and their significant others. My folks also came along. So it's just a great time had by everyone. I just absolutely love doing ghost tours. It's amazing how many of the listeners let me know that they have never been on a ghost tour yet. You guys really need to get out and do those. It's the best way to find out the history in a city by far. I encourage you guys to check out the historyghostbump.com website. It's your one-stop shop for where to find me on social media, how to get to the Emporium, where we have all kinds of great logo gear and other t-shirts and things for you to check out. And if you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. I did get a couple of comments over on the website. Caitlin wrote, hi, I'm still very far behind, but I love the podcast. I love all things spooky, and it's really cool to hear history behind some of those spooky things to keep it up. Thank you, Caitlin. And Dan said, excellent show. I was pointed to this podcast by a friend. It was nice to see our old and isolated city featured. I moved to St. John's a couple of years ago after growing up in the southern U.S. and doing some time in Alberta. He said some more interesting bits of information. NL has its own quote-unquote language thanks to its diverse settlement history. There are obvious Irish, English, and a bit of French influences in there. You will also readily be reminded that it's New Finland and Labrador. (laughs) I think I put the emphasis in the wrong places when I was talking about those cities, but I hope I got it pretty close to right. I believe 290 Duckworth is still vacant, but 288 right next door is also creepy. It's now a hip new geek-themed pub that I and others frequent. The architecture has been preserved with a few geeky upgrades. I haven't seen any hauntings yet, but I'll keep an eye out. I think the D&D room is most likely to see someone, something. So thanks for letting me know about that, Dan. And I want to thank Chelsea for her email. It was wonderful. Greatly appreciated. Now that summer is getting closer, that means that Halloween is getting closer as well. And you guys know when I do the Halloween episode, I like to share your scary experiences that you've personally had. So you can start sending those to me. And I will start saving those for the Halloween episode. If I get shorter ones, I usually share those on an episode towards the end. But if they're longer, I like to save them for the Halloween episode. I've already started getting a couple of those. So please send those to me at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. Want to welcome into the cemetery Radon Aguilar and Genevieve and Aria. All of you will be getting marble headstones. And I want to thank Tina Norman and Mona von Petersdorf for raising your support. You guys are going to be moved into chess tombs. And now we have some more eulogies from Mort. Eulogies by Mort. This eulogy is for Rosa Marie Ward. Burying her keeps me from getting bored. 
She had lived in the city of Henderson, but now her time with living is done. Lisa Weaver had lived in the state of the Tar Heel. Now she knows that the afterlife is real. She was always looking for a good ghost tour. Now she'll be part of one for sure. Rachel Pardo had lived in the Empire State. She probably had plans, but it's not too late. The afterlife is good for unfinished business. It's also a good time to de-stress. These poetic lines are for a man west. Her sweet smile is now at eternal rest. She lived near the lighthouse in Point Sur. Do you think this top hat makes me look demure? Sir Kiho had lived in the city of San Diego. His burial is near this tree with a crow. He had supported the show for over a year. And that is not something at which to sneer. Laura Williams was from the city of Philly. I hear that there it can get quite chilly. She did a lot of work in human resources. And apparently had an affinity for supernatural forces. Tanug Axberg was a longtime supporter. I'm glad now I finally get to meet her. She liked hearing about places that were scary. Now she'll be riding aboard Charon's ferry. Have a spooky experience that occurred at an historic location? Want to give us feedback or have a suggestion for the show? Share it with us at historygoesbump at gmail.com.